How's your first ever dirty chai, Patrick? My face is on fire. Welcome to Trade-Offs, where product habits Heaton Shaw and ProfitWell's Patrick Campbell discuss tech through a product-first mindset to inspire you to think differently. This week, they talk about contraction and expansion product strategy. Companies need to think about contracting their products, not expanding their products. And that's kind of the thesis I'm coming from. Bootstrapped PTSD. The goal isn't a $100 million business like us and, and beyond. The goal is like, holy cow, if I had a $10 million business, holy cow. I just want a million dollar business. And investor updates. We believe that the people who have given us money deserve a monthly update about what's going on in our business. All right. We're not going to do any like, hey, how you doing? Because Heaton and I were in the middle of a heated discussion. And now it's like, no, 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 no. Let's let's record. So we're talking about- We have about to hit record. This is a little different product, than usual ones. Product expansion and contraction. Well, normally it's, we end up talking for 45 minutes. And then we go, oh crap, we got to record. What should we like re-talk about? Okay. Just say what you just said. <laughs> the thesis that I'm going for, we got in a pretty deep product discussion because Patrick has some product stuff he's doing just like I do right now too. And I've been thinking about these concepts and they're swirling in my head. They probably only make half sense, but I think they're worthy That's of discussion. Great. And hopefully by the end of it, they make full sense or at least more than half sense. I believe today because of where software is and SaaS is that companies need to think about contracting their products, not expanding their products. And that's kind of the thesis I'm coming from. What I define as contraction might be different than what you might be thinking. I'm not talking about killing features necessarily. I'm not talking about that. And there's probably a better way to say it, but I like contraction because it really forces you to think smarter. What I think you're contracting around, so you're kind of tightening up your product and your vision and your strategy around is your value proposition, your core value proposition, how that makes customers feel and what it does for them. And that's what I mean. So it's not that I'm saying don't build more stuff. It's more build the right stuff around this contraction that you essentially discover as you build a bunch of stuff and realize, oh, this is the thing that matters to the customer. This is the thing that adds maximum value. Once you figure that out, you're kind of contracting the whole product around that. Everything should point towards that and nothing else. And over time, you find new contraction opportunities, almost like focal points that you kind of start bringing everything else around. And we could give some examples, but that's what's in my head because we normally think about expansion, which is add features, add more use cases, double down on building more because now you have an ability to build more because maybe customers are happy and you're trying to figure out what to do. I believe it's a mistake today to think that expanding equals new use cases, new features, new value props. Especially if you found such a good one that if you just double down on it, customers are going to be happy and you'll keep getting more customers. What do you got? Okay, I'm going to document. So what is an example of a product? And then what's the scenario if you were expanding that product? And what's the scenario when you're contracting that product? So everything goes around positioning and use cases and value propositions. And so a good example of a product that you might not think of in this way is actually HubSpot. So initially, they contracted around a marketing suite, and they did not do anything else until they owned that. And owned so let me, mean- Let me interrupt you. Yes. They started with the blogging, kind of like a CMS-ish, plus email, or not even email. I think it was just like a just blog CMS. kind of thing, and some lead collection. And then they were like, instead of going- Let's add sales. Let's add this. Let's add this. They were like, what are all the other things our VP of marketing persona needs? They need email. They need workflows. They need 
uh, lead magnets and they just kept like contracting, contracting on the marketing use cases. Did I yeah, read that right? Yeah. And they even laddered it. And what I mean by laddered it is Dermesh showed me this years ago and now I can talk about it. They have it in their investor presentation. I think we've talked about it before. They have this great chart that shows like marketing, sales, service, whatever categories they're in and tries to pinpoint customer size. So initially HubSpot with the blogging platform and CMS was very much relatively low end SMB, but they were able to charge a bunch of money because of the whole pitch around inbound marketing. And this is how you get leads and customers and that kind of stuff. Then over time, they expanded into other opportunities that were still a contraction in my sort of framework of the marketing use case. It's tighten that up, make it better, double down on it. That doesn't mean don't add stuff. That doesn't mean don't expand. That just means expand in a way that's around that core really tight. And I call that contraction because the mental model in my head is like, well, yeah, of course they should add sales. Why didn't they do that earlier? But when you think about it, if you don't own that value prop that people are buying you for and own mean better than anyone else, then you expand and you inevitably fail. Because when you expand, you have all these new things you have to deal with, possibly new customer types, obviously new features, new issues that you didn't deal with before with whatever you were building. Like building a sales product is much different than building a marketing product, even if it's a whole suite. And so because different users, different use cases, different needs, even though they're all around leads and all this stuff. And the evidence of this is like some of the iteration you've seen HubSpot do over time around trying a bunch of things. Like they actually even tried contraction pretty hard when it came to personalizing websites. And they even had a whole thing about that in one of their uh, conferences in one year as a theme about personalizing websites. They didn't call it exactly that. I forgot what they called it. Where is that now? It's essentially a core part of their marketing platform, but it's not a big deal. But they made all these attempts on contraction, and I was very impressed with how much they just kept hammering the all-in-one marketing tool because they knew that that's what people wanted. Even like pop-up surveys, like on, on your page and all that, they have that. That's not for sales. That's for marketing. Maybe it's for support, but it's really for marketing. Like marketers were using that to learn what visitors think on their website right? When they visit them. So I think they're an example. Another example that's almost the opposite, but is kind of interesting is Intercom. Intercom had basically identified a jobs to be done step-by-step workflow based on companies communicating with their customers. And so that was their kind of, if you want to call it a contraction, it was really just their tooling. Their tool was a generic tool to message customers on a very high level. Then In their case, they didn't contract. What they did, in my opinion, is they expanded into as many different verticals or departments more accurately, even though they wouldn't describe it like this originally because they were all into jobs to be done. But really, it's departments. They expanded into different departments, but for this specific use case. So from a value prop feature set, like the things people are doing, which is communicating with customers, it was a contraction. From the standpoint of hitting all these new types of customers, it was an expansion. But if they didn't understand that customer communication is what their tool's all about, they wouldn't have been able to be as thoughtful about how they played this sort of game, right? And the reason I mentioned Intercom is because you look at Drift, who basically took a slice of use case out of Intercom, essentially, which is like this workflow of communicating with customers. And I think they've contracted their business around a very singular idea. That singular idea, they have now made clear which is revenue. If you use Drift, 
your goal is to drive more revenue because of using Drift. They call it revenue acceleration, right? That's a contraction and is an option that Intercom itself could have done, but then they wouldn't have had the support use case and the marketing use case and the you know product use case and all the different ones that they have now. And so I think that it's really interesting when you think about it like this, which is like what areas are, is a company or a product going to contract in or needs to versus where do they need to expand? And again, I hesitate still with the word contraction, but like for my own mindset, it's really helpful because it's different than expansion. And it's really about core value. Yeah. Let's just succinctly answer, when do I contract and when do I expand? And I, I know it's not, one, we're riffing. That's why I let you go. But two, like I know it's not, like we've thought about this based on all the other thoughts so we're kind of creating a framework on the fly, but like, what do you think contraction makes sense? And when do you like, all right, okay, cool, I'm going to expand. I deeply, deeply want to say there's an art to it, but I don't think there's any art to this. I think it's absurdly simple. And the that reason I think it's absurdly simple is because HubSpot has like laid out a, a very good example of this. It felt like they didn't expand until they felt really good about their ability to contract around the marketing use case. So internally, I would not, go into expansion if there's more to do around contraction around your core value prop. So what I mean by that is like until HubSpot had the team to iterate the marketing product, it didn't make sense to go after the sales product, partly because their value prop is an all-in-one. It was an all-in-one marketing tool. And so if you want to deliver on that promise, you need an engineering team that is willing to build and is able to build any feature that anyone else has that is worthy of being built for your customers in that category. Yeah, so just straight up, no holds bar, kill every request. Like probably not every, but like mostly every request. All the ones that you deem are competitive threats or will or enable you to keep keep segment. or expand customers, customer revenue, but around the core use case. So a simpler way to put it, for me, contraction is the idea of not getting distracted by any value props or use cases that are not around the core thing you figured out that customers love you for. So in your business, to me, contraction looks like you figured out that you can essentially hand people free money if they integrate your tool with retain. So the idea is make me money. So anything you do that's a contraction would be in the make me money category because that's what people already come to you for. So old school marketers that understand this stuff, direct response and all that would just simply say, oh, audience has intent. I would say that, oh, products have intent. And that intent is what contraction is about. You contract your whole core value prop around that intent and are like so maniacal about making sure no one else can beat you by making sure that you can always stay ahead, depending on what you're building. In your case, I don't see you having like any kind of all-in-one use cases or anything like that. I think your use case is simply make somebody more money from their existing customers if they use your tool. So all the ideas I would have would be to satisfy that need better than any other company in the market. But yet, as product people, leaders, whatever, our mindset is always about new and expansion and, and other value props and use cases for the most part instead of doubling down. So here's, here's an interesting question. And I'm going to try to avoid talking about the things we talked about before we recorded. HubSpot doubling down on marketing, building like pop-ups, Optimonk, building all the stuff into their suite, right? At least at a basic level, because they don't need to build as deep because most marketers just want the basics, right? 
that move into sales, like there's plenty of things they could have kept building with marketing because their whole goal is to like drive revenue theoretically or drive and optimize revenue. Why didn't they keep going down on marketing rather than going into sales? It's just they had enough bandwidth and they could like go after it and it was part of the longer vision. When do you know like, okay, my thesis of driving revenue is no longer just driving marketing revenue. It's also driving revenue with sales. That's, that's an interesting question because we have that same problem, right? We have retain and we can, we can just keep going on retain and there's endless things to do. But when do we know, okay, well, we also know there's this acquisition product we could build that looks just like retain, but it helps with ad units or it helps with whatever and it automatically gives you more money, but through there, there's other stuff we could build. How do you know like when to kind of expand that thesis, I guess is the best way. How I would How I would address that in my own company would be, do we feel like if any competitive threat to us comes along around that core, around retain, that in short order, we can attack it with an improvement to our product? Not with marketing. Say that one more time. If a competitive threat shows up, we are able to, in short order, address it with our product. So let's say that isn't an issue right now. We're way ahead of our competitors and we're making money and there's now diminishing returns on like the big swings we can do to like add more revenue for this function. That's a good time to then go to something. Do you else. do you have a roadmap that's clear around the innovations that you want to do in the market then? That's the second thing I would ask. For just retention or for just retain. Just retain. That's your core, right? Yeah. Around we around why that. people love you. Right. We so that, that would be the best time to go think about everything else because you have a system. Your product development is so set up in such a way. It. Yeah, you have everything set up, right? It's all about the internal stuff. It's not as external or as customer-centric as like you might think. This is actually more about, are we set up for success? What does success look like in the market? We can literally deal with any competition that comes up, which also includes innovating ourselves. So one angle is, oh, they a comp- competitor adds something, we should add it too, just as an example. But another angle is, are we able to continue to innovate? Does our roadmap look innovative? Because like, here's the thing, like, I don't throw around the word innovation lightly, but I will refuse to not use it because it is a very, very core part of what all of us need to be doing in basically every market because every market's competitive and innovation is what customers need. So that piece would be the secondary piece. If you got the first piece covered, great. The secondary piece is a little bit rougher because it requires more on the product side, less on the engineering side in terms of, well, you can't innovate without someone coming up with what's that innovation. And innovation is just a synonym for creativity, to be honest, like at the end of the day in in these contexts. How creative can you get with what you do, right? And do you have those muscles, right? Whether it's using user research or some visionary like person in the company that just can see what the product needs to do. I'm not stuck on how that shows up. A lot of people get stuck on that. I don't don't get stuck on it. Sometimes people are able to come up with ideas out of thin air that are really great. Um, So that has to do with your ability to evaluate, your ability to prioritize, your ability to really focus on what's going to have the most impact for for customers and thus you. One definition I want to say about contraction, because I looked it up. So there's one that's called the process of becoming smaller. That's not what I mean. Because those are like shrinking, shrinkage, decline, decrease, yeah, diminution. Like reducing right? features. Yeah. These types the of one things. I'm talking about is actually the process in which a muscle becomes or is made shorter and tighter. So tightening, tensing, flexing is probably the closest thing to what I mean. Because you're, you're essentially saying, can we flex? And when we flex, does it show? Right. Like my arms are pretty weak right now. So like when I flex, it doesn't, it barely shows, but like, you know, you when you see somebody who flexes, shirts, yeah, there you go. There you go. There you go. That's what I mean. Cause I had to make sure that at least I have some kind of loose 
alignment with the definition of the word, but it's the second definition that it's about. It's about muscles, making them shorter and tighter. That's exactly what I'm talking about, which doesn't like mean this. you don't work out. It means you actually work out in a different way. I like it. I like it. Well, you, you helped me make it up because of some questions you were talking yeah. about and where we were, no, where no, my no, head no. is. Well, this is, this is how it works, right? I, yeah. I think about this super extreme with, with our products. So like, for example, when we were a search tool, it was find your documents in three clicks or less. Everything we did had to be around three clicks or less, not just find documents. Everything had to be three clicks or less. So when we were going to do other features, we were always like, does it hit the three clicks or less? Can we make it that great? One of the reasons that I haven't really shared a lot about and probably won't that we moved to like what we did, which I'll, I'll mention again in a second, is because we didn't think we could do three clicks or less for the things that we thought we needed to get that business to work. That is that simple, right? And so that's why we couldn't contract. We couldn't double down. We couldn't get to where we wanted to. That was like a little bit of a existential crisis we had, which essentially made us go look for a pivot uh, in a different way than some of the other things I've talked about and why the pivot happened. And then when we pivoted, we would go again for the statement. These statements are super important at least in my opinion. And we spent a lot of effort on them. So our statement that we contract around now is protect company information from unauthorized access. If you look at our homepage, it says protect company documents from unauthorized access. That's not what we contract around. That's just a narrow piece of the puzzle. The bigger piece is company information, not company docs. We're not just going to be a tool that just focuses on docs eventually. That's just the best starting point. So everything we do is contracting around company information and preventing unauthorized access. What was your statement there? Your narrower statement? Protect company? The one on the homepage is prevent company documents from unauthorized access. The one we internally contract around and have decided to is prevent company information from unauthorized access. For a homepage, it's not specific enough today to say information versus documents because information implies lots of different things. So we, we made it documents and we only have one integration right now, which is with Google G Suite, Google Workspace, whatever they're calling it today. That's like your North Star. Exactly. For us, it could be like, it's the revenue automation piece that we talked about and like our subset products are like... Make money while you sleep. Yeah, yeah, that type of stuff. Make subscription revenue while you sleep. Like those are the kind of things that pop in my head. Two reasons I think this is important. The second one's selfish. The first one that's not selfish, the reason I think this is so important is because we're heading into a multi-product world and I think that's going to expand a lot. And I think it's going to be really, really important to understand, especially when it comes to bundling, the age old question of, is this a feature? Is this an additional product? Is this like going after the same thing? Are we going to go after a tangential vein? Are we going to go after a parallel vein? All of those questions, we as the, the royal we do not have good frameworks for. They're being created. A lot of us are looking at HubSpot, but like, HubSpot's first through the breach. So a lot of things they did, they got there with spending a lot of money and that's what they needed to do. Don't get me wrong. So like, it's not a bad statement. It's just how do we as like more leverage heavy businesses or businesses that need more heavy leverage, how do we figure these types of things out? And money will always be an equalizer, but I think that's a big thing. The other reason is, is I think like I described our current situation from a product perspective because we know kind of we, we have the roadmap for retain and, and it's, it's not all picture perfect and clear, but like we kind of know the big pieces and we know we'll figure out the details for like the further out pieces um, relatively quickly. And so we're thinking of like, what is that next thing? What is that next thing? And it's, it feels like um, it's kind of like that sophomore slump concepts with like albums and artists and stuff like that, where they're trying to like get another hit 
but thereby getting another hit, they're just like overthinking everything. And I think this gives me a framework at least that I can share with the rest of the crew of like, at least to have the conversation, not necessarily make the decision, but that's the thing with most frameworks. It's, it's not helping you like get the perfect answer. It's helping you make the decision and have the discussion. Everything's about narrative and story and getting us all aligned, right? In a company, like without that, like nothing happens. So I'm always looking for ways to describe these things so people understand them. And like, I think to your points about like how you figure this out and how you like figure out what to double down on. I mean, that's, that's the work, right? You're right. It's not about money or anything. It's just like the work, like the work is to figure out what matters to the customer and what more you need to be doing. Like right now we have a big debate internally that is kind of done now because of some customer feedback, but what is the next integration we do and why? So for us, it's a contra- it has to be a contraction. We have like four or five options. But if you think about it, like I'm really stuck on this idea of we're not just focused on documents, we're also focused on information. And so I've been pushing for like an integration that shows that off, right? And like we just got some validation as we talked to customers and some new data that shows like, oh, there's a very specific integration we need that kind of matches the criteria internally and externally. And it's, it's, it's just as big as Google, but everyone that uses Google also uses this thing. And so it makes a lot of sense for us to Ooh. do that next. Yeah, I know. It's going to be fun. I'm not going to guess because I don't want you to react, but I'll guess when we stop recording. It's very obvious. No, it's a really awkward transition. We don't have sure. to transition, but let's do it. Remember that place I told you about in Salt Lake with really good chai? Yeah, with the spicy chai that you couldn't drink. Well, I got one. It wasn't and, so spicy. Hold on. Just wait for the punchline here. So I was hanging out with Nate Walkinshaw, friend of the pod. He was CXO over at Pluralsight working on some crazy cool stuff. And we ordered a dirty chai, so with shots of espresso, and then just a regular chai. I think I got the dirty chai with the espresso. My face is on fire right now. My throat is like, I'm about to like cough right now uncontrollably. I have how spicy and also the espresso. I've never had a dirty chai. And I'm like, holy cow. No, dirty chais are great, bro. What are you talking about? Dude, like, I've never like, had this. No, it's like, a it's thing. Just like, I, it is amazing, Well, it's like dude. the chai must have a better delivery mechanism it for does. espresso because I've never felt this with like espresso. It's a theanine. So basically you have a, a certain- theanine, man. Yeah, the, the, you have a certain amount of theanine and then you have your caffeine. Coffee has no theanine. So now you've got your theanine. So you've, you've got a little bit of the balancing cover because theanine basically reduces the, the caffeine effect, like the jittery effect. So you've got that in the chai. You have whatever amount of caffeine's in the chai, and you just boosted it with like triple the caffeine or something, yeah. right? Normally, when I drink coffee, I don't notice it unless I go overboard. I am noticing it right now. Oh heck I yeah! I am like, thank God I'm recording podcasts the rest of the day because yeah. I'm like, you're I could on not, fire. Like, I love let me it, do dude. Some thought work or some spreadsheets. Uh, with, with this chai situation, you're definitely in my world, dude. <laughs> dude, I, when I was drinking coffee, already. when I was drinking coffee, those dirty chais like got me. A lot of work done, dude. A lot of work done. A lot of work done. No jitters. Oh, this is an accident because I don't think I ever would have done this on my own. Oh, no. The mate lattes I'm enjoying too. Mate lattes are great. Mate. Yeah. I've been trying to do more tea. Well, how does matcha work for you? So matcha is exactly how you just described. The no jitters, but energy. To the point that like, I don't think it's working. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't feel an effect, but... And looking at like my whoop and stuff like that, like I can see that there is an effect. Chai, I don't get jitters or anything. Chai, I always looked at as like not a caffeine. I never looked at it as an energy thing, if that makes sense. Yep. Anyways, nice transition. I like what it. What else is on your mind? What else is on my mind? Th- this was on my mind. 
So that's that. That Great. was good. This is therapy. This is our. Yeah, therapy it's always treatment. therapy. I mean, this is why. why else we don't would you do record this? it. There's only two of us. We have many, no guests. Uh, like, what? How could this I not know. be therapy? But I'm just saying, like, we always have therapy because what people don't know is we book 90 minutes. Yep. And what ends up happening is we speak for 45 about the stuff we truly can't say in the podcast. And then we speak for the other 45 about the things we probably shouldn't say always on the podcast. So it kind of works out. Yeah, this time you got to hear the internal conversation first. Dude, my face is on fire right now. You ever have too much niacin? Do you know niacin? Yes, yes. Like too many, uh, I can't remember the nut. Is it Brazil nuts maybe? I can't remember. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Right now, the niacin flush, that's what it feels like right now. I'm loving it. Anyways, here's an interesting question. We've never been religious about raising money, and I think we've talked about this a couple podcasts ago. And we are thinking as seriously as we ever have about raising money to the point that we're like getting our numbers in order. We're cleaning a bunch of stuff up with the possibility that we raise cash spring of 2022. And there's still a possibility we don't do it at all because like if we get some of these goals, then we it don't might not need matter. to. And yep. some of the numbers are actually turning out much better when we start to push them than we thought they were going to be. Champagne problem. But here's an interesting question. Assuming we raise money, we are going from not raising any money to raising money for the first time. Do we raise a quiet or maybe not even announced angel round of some sort? Because if we go institutional, the valuation is probably going to be to a point that some of the people who have helped get us here, some of the angels, friends, these types of things, like they'll probably still put money in, but there's probably a lower valuation that's still high that makes sense for the angels. And then like kind of do what some of these companies have been doing and literally like we'll announce that the day that our institutional stuff closes and then we'll announce the next one the day the next one closes. What do you think about this? Or is it like overthinking, just raise one round, angels will jump in regardless? Like how do you think about this? What people have been doing that I don't think is going to last is the strategy you describe of like angel round, no VCs, announce it, and that gets the VCs interested. In your case, you've been around longer than a lot of the companies that are trying to do those strategies. So even if like their revenue is growing super fast or whatever, they haven't been around that long. They need all these people around them. Like they actually need it. It helps them a lot, like with recruiting and other things. You've been running this business for a long time. You don't really need anyone's help from a, I mean, obviously we all need everyone's help, but you know what I mean? You don't really need it the way, you don't need credibility. You don't need any of that, right? Which I know you're going to do. You're going to get the business to where you think it needs to be so that venture makes perfect sense. Perfect meaning it's just like, a silver platter. My take is you want to you want to you want to hand the investor something on a silver platter that is just a no-brainer. And anything you do that's not that, you're essentially trying to address objections, which is totally fine, but that's what we're doing. But the silver platter is a key. What's a silver platter? X percentage growth every year, on track to do this kind of revenue and 3x our revenue. All those kinds of things are actually what venture investors look for. Doesn't mean if you're not doing that, it's bad. Doesn't mean if you're not doing that, you won't be able to raise money. It does mean that it's harder to raise money unless you've got those numbers on the board and a good idea of the forecast, right? Dude, if you have that, you should be trying to do what's best for your business. Angels are great, like fine, but like they don't matter. They don't have the capital you need, right? And, and again, I'm an angel. So this isn't like yeah, hate yeah, or no, anything. But this like, is like, like it's all know, good. It's just true. Talking like if I, to a friend, right? Yeah, like yeah, I'm but more like, of just like, I know that's not necessarily like the picture perfect thing for the business, but like it's not binary, right? And I'm like, you know, you help me, you help me get here. Like, I want to be like, hey man, do you want to get in at like basically a preferred price rather than like the the one that the institution's giving me? I'm, I'm just going to be direct about it. Like, cause I'm your friend, like, and, and this it. is how I think about it. Cut me. Why do I care about your valuation 
If I'm just here as a friend and want to support you, I don't care. In fact, I would give you the advice of like, why give me a better deal? But like, again, like, like if you need to give someone a better deal because you want to get a bunch of people involved and all that, and you think they're going to help you get that round, great. But that's not your, I don't think if you're handing, if you're handing VCs a silver platter of metrics, that's just like, Hey, this is a no brainer. I'm going to go pitch everybody and find the right partner. There's no room for like angel rounds or any of that stuff unless you need the money. It's not thinking about the next stage. It's worrying too much about the current stage. Yeah. And, and truly, if anyone wants to be involved and they think your business is going to be massive, the valuation makes no difference. And again, yeah, this is counter on five to 10 X anyway. So it doesn't even matter. This is counter to what you see on Twitter. This is counter to the fact that there's all these freaking angels and all that. But the one factor that makes the biggest difference is what are your metrics? And if your metrics are able to be silver plattered to the largest, most respected tier one investors, and they're going to take a serious look because your business looks like it's going to be a multi-billion dollar business, dude, I'm sorry. Like us angels who want to get involved should be happy to just support you and not worry about valuation. And if you're optimizing for valuation for us, you're going to end up not doing what's best for the business. And I wouldn't want that as an angel. Other angels probably have different opinions and they they have funds and they care about their stuff. I, I invest personally. And if I'm truly your friend and I want to put in some money, I'll just do it. What's kind of funny is the people I've been asking this question, it's 50-50. Like the 50 is basically saying what you're saying. They're like, listen, like angels aren't going for like, they're going for a home run anyways. So like they'll put in their whatever valuation, um, not whatever, but you get what I'm saying. And then the other half are like, the loyalty element. And what's funny is the loyalty element, and it's not like said by loyalty, but that's kind of like where it converges. It's typically by bootstrappers, bootstrappers who are now angels, which is kind of interesting. There's a few things here, right? Does your loyalty matter to me or does my loyalty to you matter in this scenario? And my opinion is my loyalty to you matters because if I'm getting involved in your business or a friend to you, I want to give you the best advice I can. I don't really care about like what happens to me. Like I shouldn't, like if I'm truly in that category of friend. Obviously not everyone thinks like that, but that's my hard-nosed opinion. When it comes down to like the bootstrapper camp and those people investing, I'm a bootstrapper. I've self-funded. Like I've also raised money, but I've also made like, I say 150, but it's probably closer to 200 personal investments now. And I've also consistently every week helped somebody raise money, if not major amounts of somebody in some way or another on multiple different stages. And at the end of the day, like, you're either playing games to go get big money or you're the game and you already can get the big money because of what you have. The little money is only should only be used to get the big money. And loyalty should be to your business becoming more valuable and not anything else. Because as an angel, if I put in money on any round, I'm just looking to support you. But also if I'm going to make money, it's because your business got a higher valuation and eventually got some form of an exit or something. But at the end of the day, these are like five, 10 year runs and we don't know what's going to happen. And there's a light, high likelihood a lot of these things fail. So the thing is, if you're a self-funder or bootstrapper or whatever you want to call it, you're used to revenue optimization, profit optimization, things like that. But in venture, that's this, the game's opposite. Here's something. I was talking to an investor I highly respect, one that's actually helped me. And he said something and he said it's counterintuitive. And this is an investor that's been an investor for like 20 years. And he's like, I know this is counterintuitive, but when you're going to go hit it, when you're going to go do a raise, you actually have to spend more money towards the raise. That's interesting. And push it. And like, as someone who's raised money before, dealt with investors and self-funded, I 100% agree with him. Because the thing is, is highlighting. Yeah. It's basically what you're saying, just said a different way. Like, and this is kind of my fear. 
with raising. Bootstrap mind, venture mind. Like there's business mind. Don't get me wrong. It's all business mind. But there's an element of like a veneer of bootstrap mind and venture mind. Like when I talk to Ryan from Vendor, who I'm friends with, Ryan's like, dude, this is dumb. Like not this part, but like other stuff. He's like, yeah, that's dumb. Don't like that's a yeah. Don't even worry about that. That's a stereotype with VC. Like he's like whatever, because that he's done that. He's done it. Like that's his path, right? And that's the path he's steeped in. And I'm helping him with like he's like, dude, how do I handle this? And I'm like, oh, that's easy. Just here's the framework. Here's this. He's like, dude, this is awesome, right? And when I told someone, I think it was Ryan. I was like, dude, I'm just. I feel like I need a Sherpa, but I don't want a banker. And I have Sherpas in like you and other folks. Just in terms of like, I've never done this before, and. I know a lot of people make mistakes on their angel rounds that they fix in their A's and their B's, et cetera. And I'm like, I want to go straight to A or B right now. And so it's going to be a little bit harder to like, you know, and and with the right guidance, like it's fine, but it's this bootstrap brain that honestly, and I call it internally because it affects other things. I call it bootstrap PTSD because a lot of bootstrappers, like the goal isn't a hundred million dollar business like us and, and beyond. The goal is like, holy cow, if I had a $10 million business, holy cow. I just want a million dollar business, a $5 million business. That would be amazing, right? And it's just this like mindset of like, I feel like I'm getting pulled back into that world that rejects, somehow rejects you when you start making a lot more money, which is really funny. Here's the thing, right? You are only going to get this right perspective from someone who has both contexts and can sit in both of them. And unfortunately it is because- No, it's not unfortunate because we're best friends. So it's great. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm just saying, right? Like I have always had a self-funded business when I did a venture business at the same damn time. Right now I have, depending on how you count it, two or three self-funded businesses that are significant for me. And I have my venture back business. I don't run those other two. I don't spend any time on them. I'm focused on the venture back one. But like, how can someone give you a perspective if they've only sat in one place? And on top of that, I've given money to people. I've given money to self-funded people for, 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 like literally one of my friends is self-funded-ish and he needed a loan and I gave him a loan. And it's like an interest loan. And I'm not gonna invest in this company because I can't but he needed some help and I wanted to help him. He's a good friend of mine, right? So like I gave him a loan and I'm going to get some percentage back on it, right? And like, I'm cool with that. But I didn't push for anything else because the context made sense and I offered it. He didn't even ask. I just saw him struggling and I know him and his business and it's a cash flow issue. And that's why it's a self-funded business. And like, there you go, right? And then and then I've invested regularly in your standard seed, pre-seed, A, these days, even B, C, D, E, F, G, because like those are fun too. And that's great. And then on the other side, I I have to have the self-funded mentality when I need to get in convos with the people running my self-funded businesses, right? And then I need the venture mindset because that's the thing that I'm driving towards myself with all my energy and might, right? And so like, yeah, sure. If you talk to even Ryan from Vendor, who I don't know very well, He's going to give you the experience he just had because he had a great experience, to be honest. Vendor is one of those companies, one of the 2050 that has blown up and raised a significant amount of cash multiple times because of the traction they've gotten, right? How is he going to be able to talk to you about someone struggling to raise money but has something decent? That's not his experience, right? I'm not saying he can't. I'm just saying like that's not his experience. And if you haven't seen enough of that, then you don't know what the other side looks like when things are bad. And you raise money. When things are self-funded and bootstrap and things are bad, you know what to do. Like you're a self-funder, like you're a bootstrapper, like you started from nothing, you could go back to nothing, you could figure it out. When you're venture back, the whole circumstance is different because you're running out of money, things aren't working right, and you got these investors you need to make happy. 
right? And the whole game there is actually, in my opinion, monthly investor updates. But that's probably a rant for another day because not everyone agrees with me. And I think they should. On investor updates? Monthly investor updates on the dot, on the clock. We send ours on the first Monday of every month, no matter what. And we, we systematically do it because we believe that the people who have given us money deserve a monthly update about what's going on in our business. And that has helped us tremendously with them knowing what we're doing, helping us through our pivot in whatever ways they can, and having the awareness of literally a company they invested in that they probably care enough about because they invested in it. And if any of those investors don't want to reply or anything like that, we're totally cool with that. Like, we're going to send them the email. Like, I, I have Dermesh on my cap table, for example, right? And, and he's already came out and said, I will not intro you to HubSpot. Not to me. I mean, he said this publicly now, but he made it very clear. I'm a passive investor. I won't give you more money. I made this first check. I'm done. He was actually the first person that even offered to ever give us money on Product Hunt publicly. So we had to go tell him, hey, we're raising money when we did raise money. And yo, you want to do good on that comment? <laughs> you know? And he did, right? But like, I don't expect anything from him. I expect zero from him. But I'm going to do my best to send him the investor updates every month because he gave me money. Right? Anyway. Well, and off, off occasion, yeah. he reads it and is like, oh, yeah, this is, by the way, like read this article or something like that. And it's helpful. Uh, that doesn't happen. That's not him. But yeah, I know, but I know, but, 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 but like, I you know, know what I mean, like, I know if I really have a hard problem, he's on the cap table and I could ask him. And it's not like you've given him no context over time. Well, you know and I'm mean? sure he's reading every email because I would be, I read every update I get too. I mean, I don't just skim and I read it because it's interesting. It's always interesting to hear how founders are going through things and I'm, I'm damn sure he's reading them. I don't track it, but he's not the type of person that wouldn't. But it, honestly, it doesn't matter to me. Let's talk about investor updates next week. Yeah. So recap, we talked about contraction, expansion, product strategy across features and product lines with your customer. We talked about raising money and a little bit of bootstrap PTSD going from not raising to raising and the different mindsets. Um, and then we had a small thing about investor updates that will hopefully expand in upcoming episodes. Anything else? Nope. Awesome. We'll see you all next week. See you all next week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Also, make sure to subscribe to and tell your friends about Tradeoffs, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.